So we always design an extra special dose of goodness for the early morning crowd. Um, when I think about extra special goodness, I wanted to show you my portable sorority. Um, I am the father of six daughters and the husband of one wife. And uh, I, I, I miss them this morning. And, uh, but it's, this is, uh, the oldest is Julia. She's 22 in May. The youngest is Sierra. She's a very precocious 11. And uh, this is the family that joins me on these kingdom adventures ar around the world. And we are in Scotland, uh, living halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. And uh, we moved there eight years ago to plant a church in Edinburgh. We planted that. We're working on our second congregation in Bathgate. And really the, the larger vision that God dropped in our heart is to see God's kingdom purposes advance in Europe. We started a ministry that we're now partnering with CBU called the Center for European Church Planting. And uh, we're working with pastors, church planting across Europe. And we were involved in, in Ukraine years ago and, and still doing that. So we're training pastors, we're planning churches. And um, Europe is just an incredibly needy place in terms of the gospel. It's difficult to express that in, in language, but it's, it's different. Uh, a good friend of mine who was prophetic, he was flying with me into Edinburgh. Actually, he's speaking here in November, Jim LaFoon. If you haven't heard him, come in November. He, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great gift to the body of Christ, but he, he's, a, he's a Bible teacher, but he's also prophetic. And so he was flying with me from London into Edinburgh to, to discern the word of the Lord as we're preparing this church plant in Edinburgh. And so we're flying, and Jim's funny when he is in a prophetic mode, and I could just see him sitting right across the aisle from me on the plane just brooding. And I, when his head twitches like that, you know he's hearing from God. And so I'm waiting for the word of the Lord. And I was like, I'm like Jim, what are you hearing? You know, it's dark. It's real dark. I'm like, I knew that. I think that's why Jesus sent us here. But, well, thank you. Um, so you can pray for us as we are working in the dark continent called Europe. Our, our topic this morning is called Joy, the Elusive Fruit. Uh, yesterday, Dr. Koch walked us through a good exegesis of Romans 14, 17. And this morning, I want to, to drill in on this, this notion of joy, which I'm framing as an elusive fruit. For some of you, you may have enough joy in your life. You don't need any more joy. Um, well, that's okay. Just take notes and teach this to somebody else. For the rest of us, we're going to try to lay hold of joy this morning in a, in a unique kind of way. And our text this morning, our theological text, is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we're not going to go through all these, but for your Bible study, the, the background, our parabolic text is Luke chapter 15, our narrative text is John chapter 4, and our Old Testament text is Isaiah 52 verse 7. I promise we're not going to exegete all of these texts this morning, we'll be here for about a week, but we're, that, that's the background that we'll be looking at. But we are going to read together 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Then we're going to pray and ask God to give us wisdom as we meditate upon his word this morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our Father, as we meditate upon your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name that you would open your word to us. Lord, we're asking that you would refresh us, enjoy this elusive fruit. We ask this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in my father's office, there's a picture of Anderson Auditorium right across the road here. And it's filled with people, and it was a picture from 1976. And back in those days, we didn't have these video projectors. And so the way that we put the conference theme up over the, the stage was with a physical banner. And the banner that was over the stage in November 1976 said this, Joy, the mark of maturity. Some of you may have been at that conference. Joy, the mark of maturity. Now, I was a little boy at the time, but I have always been compelled and gripped by that conference theme, joy, the mark of maturity. Can someone look at the joy quotient in your life and discern your level of spiritual maturity? It's a fascinating thing. Now, I hold this before you this morning that joy is very important. And before we get back to our text, I want to talk about why joy is so important because I think that joy is both a witness and a weapon. Joy is a witness in this, that in the midst of difficulty, someone looks at your life and sees joy and says, I need what you have. So when we're walking in joy, it's a witness to the world that this faith of ours is real. But not only is it a witness, it's also a weapon. I also hold before you that without joy in your life, you will not thrive in these days ahead that God has ordained for you. My Bible says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. We need the strength of God to walk forward with where he's going. Now, this idea of joy as a weapon I think is important in this day. One theologian described joy in these terms. Joy is an eschatological mastering of the world. Joy is the ability to live now in the fullness of victory that Jesus has already purchased and made available. My Bible also says that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Walking in that now is joyful. 
if you're seated with him, walking with him in heavenly places, if that reality defines your life, your life will be a joy-filled life. Now, this is challenging for me as I go back and forth from Scotland to the States. And when I come back here, um, I, I, I see and feel our nation wrestling with questions. I hear, I hear Christians deeply struggling about the direction and the state of our nation. And I hold before you that whatever unfolds over the next 10, 20, or 50 years, joy will be a necessary requisite for walking with and in what God has for us. Now, the questions that, that are on our minds these days are, it reminds me of, of Gideon when he's down beating out some wheat there at the wine press, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Hail thou mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. Now, Gideon at the time did not feel like the Lord was with him at all. And he looks around, Lord is with me. Then I have two very important questions. Number one, where are all the miracles that our fathers told us about? How many times have I heard that question recently? If the Lord is with us, shouldn't it be 1973 all over again? And then question number two, if the Lord's with us, what are all these Midianites doing around here? This doesn't feel like a Lord is with us kind of thing. I want to give you a little radical thought. Our Father in Heaven is not nervous about the United States. I know that's radical. But my Bible says in Isaiah 40, the nations, including this one, are a drop in the bucket. The kingdom of God and the scope of eternity, that's the deal. Nations rise, nations fall. Kings rise, kings fall. Our God is running this show. And he is not nervous about how it's going to end. If you, I know some of you don't watch movies because you're holier than me. There was a movie called The Truman Show, and they were wearing this. How's it going to end? Trust me, our father is not asking that question. He knows how it's going to end. And in this story, he wins. He wins today. He wins tomorrow. He wins the next decade. And he wins in the next century. Our God wins. But this is difficult for us in the moment in which we're living in. Because like Gideon, we have this memory of what was and find ourselves living in a moment that's deeply challenging to our souls. But I hope before you that we're not the first generation to ask this kind of question. There was a guy named Augustine who lived a long time ago, 5th century. And at the time Augustine lived, uh, the the Roman Empire, Constantine had shifted the, the capital to the east, to Constantinople, to Istanbul, and the west was beginning to erode a bit. And finally, in the year 410, a dude named Alarak the Visigoth brought his merry band of 
barbarians and sacked the city of Rome. Now, at the time, the Roman Christians did not have a theological category for their own city being sacked. Um, Rome was the special city. It was the most important church. It was the place Paul and Peter had been martyred. Rome, in terms of Christian theology at the time, had special status with God. God would never allow Rome to fall, and surely not to the hands of the Visigoths. So Augustine wrote a book called The City of God to remind Christians that the city of man rises and falls, but the city of God goes on forever. The city of God knows no fluctuation. The kingdom of our God is absolutely secure. Now, as we lay a foundation for what we want to look at this morning, I want to give you three big ideas just to serve as a foundation. If we're trying to lay hold of joy, big idea number one is this. The locus of the greatest joy in the universe is found in God himself. We just sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the happy land of the Trinity, there is an abundance of joy. Now, theologians have a word called perichoresis, which is a really cool word, but it, it means this interpenetration of the Trinity from all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father and the Spirit and the Son and Spirit and the Father and this, not static, but this movement of love and joy and peace and this kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom, the rule and reign of God in God himself. And in God himself, there is an absolute abundance of joy. Now, this is important because big idea number two, the joy of Jesus is available for us. This is what Jesus said in John 15. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you, that you may be full of joy. Now think about that. Jesus made a promise to us that his joy can be in us. Now, I, I like that promise. Because um, I think the joy of Jesus is a reasonably extreme kind of joy. Um, I think Jesus walked in joy. I think Jesus lived in this joy of being in the Father and the Father in Him and Him being in the Spirit and the Spirit in Him. Jesus lived in joy and He said, my joy can be in you. So the idea this morning is that the joy of Jesus is available for us. Now that would be a fun place to stop and we could go home there and just meditate on the joy of Jesus being in us. But big idea number three, and I'm sorry for this, but I just have to interact with the Bible this morning. Uh, kingdom joy includes kingdom suffering. Um, this is the way that Paul wrote to the Romans. In verse 2, he said, we rejoice in the hope of glory. That's another one of these verses we just, I wish we could stop there, but no, he goes on. He says, we rejoice 
in our sufferings. Uh, he, lo he loses me there on verse 3. Um, I I'm not real happy that he put that word there, but there's this idea that all through Scripture, we have this idea of tension. Um, there are all kinds of truths in the Bible where seemingly opposite things are brought together. Now, our English language is kind of, kind of beautiful and, and flexible, and especially American English, um, how in our speech we, we bring sort of opposite things together. And sometimes it's just funny if you think about how we do that. Like, you ever, ever thought about the phrase, jumbo shrimp? <laughs> Virtual reality? What is that? Have you ever tried to come to a rolling stop? <laughs> Has anybody ever given you an exact estimate? Have you ever tried to fight a civil war? <laughs> Some of you are saying, yeah, that's my marriage. I... Maybe you serve as a paid volunteer. <laughs> what is that? And then the one I like is, we say, well, she's pretty ugly. <laughs> Which one is she? I don't have a category for pretty, but... So in our English language, we bring these. Now, in the Bible, we, we see these things like this, like universality and particularity. God so loved the world that he gave his son. The love of God is real big, but his love for us is expressed in the particularity of his son, Jesus. We see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Now, what happens theologically where we get into distortion is rather than saying and, we try to say or. We say, well, God loves or there's salvation in Jesus. No, it's both and. We say, well, God is sovereign or man is responsible. No, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And so, as we come to this idea of joy, we see that joy and the cross, it's not or, it's and. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. In one sentence, joy and the cross. Oh, what was the joy that was set before him? This verse ends with he sits down at the right hand of God. The joy that was set before him is this, that when he obeys the Father and goes to the cross and stands in our place and bears our sin and receives on himself the penalty for us, the joy set before him is that when he's sitting down at the Father, he's not sitting down alone. He's redeeming a people to himself. The joy is those he has purchased. The joy is the slaves he has set free. The joy is the redeemed that he has brought home to the Father. That joy was so strong, he said, I will endure this cross for that joy because that joy is bigger than this cross. 
Then it says he despised the shame. He looked at the shame of hanging naked on that cross and said, that's nothing. I despise that. My eyes are fixed on this joy. I'm bringing home to the Father those he has given me. I'm redeeming this company, and I'm going to take them home. Now, this, this joy and this cross being juxtaposed, we're getting ready to come up on this, this very special week every year where we celebrate all in one week, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. You talk about an emotional and theological roller coaster. I mean, it starts up here and goes down here, and then it comes back up. But this is, you know, you may know some Palm Sunday Christians. You may know some people that they like camping out in the celebration of the Palm Sunday. Let's all worship, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But when Jesus said, well, we're not stopping here. We're, we're going on to Good Friday. They're like Peter, um, who has this conversation with Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. And is like, Jesus, you're the son of God. And we're, we're really into that. And he pulls him to the side, and Peter is, is the ultimate PR coach. And says, uh, you had us. You had us with the miracles, with the Son of God, with the power. We're, we're into that. But with this cross stuff, Jesus, we did an opinion poll, and we're, we're just not into this. The, the, you're freaking the guys out, Jesus. Jesus, they actually took you literally. You can't talk like that. Just going to Jerusalem to die? Jesus, if you can just get over this martyr complex, I tell you, this is going to be big. That's a Palm Sunday Christian. They want the joy, but not the cross. What I'm attempting to communicate this morning, there is no joy without the cross. There is no resurrection and walking in what God has for us apart from the cross. But thankfully, Jesus was not persuaded by Peter. All through the scriptures, you read the gospel of Mark, there, there's a laser beam trajectory. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Why? For the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He's inviting us to participate with him in this project of bringing the lost home to the Father. Now, if this were easy, everybody would be doing it. But we have some Palm Sunday Christians. I know nobody here, but our Father's inviting us to partner with him. Now, when I was 18, I was really being refreshed in my walk with God. And I was also preparing to go to the University of North Carolina um, to, it really is, um, at Chapel Hill. Now, we had an old state senator who said, you know, you could put a fence around Chapel Hill and call it the state zoo. Um, I mean, I grew up here in Black Mountain. Um, 
I mean, sin was going out to drink a couple of beers on Saturday night. They had whole categories of sin down there I didn't even know existed. I mean, I felt like Tinkerbell going to a Hells Angels convention. I remember the first night I was there, it's 2.30 in the morning, and I'm laying on my bed, and the party just on the other side of my dorm was vibrating so big. And I remember I said, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? And he whispered to me in that moment, said, Sonny boy, you haven't gotten yourself into anything. I have placed you here. And... So I started wrestling with, okay, well, maybe, maybe God wants me to be involved in this kingdom advance thing. And so we did radical stuff. I mean, there's this place called the Pit at Carolina. We'd get out there. We would open air preach, and we'd do all kinds of radical stuff. And one day I was walking across this, this public area there called, called the Pit, and a, a guy that I knew in some other church was out there preaching and going for it, and there were three people listening to him, and um, sometimes it was fun, you know, atheists would come by and heckle, and that was always fun because people loved to watch a fight, and you always get a bigger crowd if you had hecklers. And so, but but I, I saw this boy li- listening, or ju- just, just sitting there, and I thought, well, I'm going to have an evangelistic moment here. And so I went and sat down beside this fella, and, and he, he was dressed like a hell's angel. I mean, he, he looked like a biker, and... You know, I'm, I'm there in you know, khakis and a little shirt and just, you know, two clashes of culture right there. But, you know, I just asked him, so what do you think about this fellow and what he's preaching? And he just kind of blew me off and, and di- didn't give me the time of day. And I thought, no, really, what do you think? And so we, we just started talking about it. And after about 15 minutes, he said, look, it was nice chatting with you, but I got to go in here and get lunch. I said, well, I'm hungry, too. I'll, I'll just come with you. And... <laughs> So I followed him in, you know, got, you know, sat down in front of him and just was just simply preaching the gospel to him. And, you know, anytime, you know, it would just pause, you know, I'd say something else. And, you know, I'm 18 years old and, you know, I know about three verses of the Bible, but whatever I knew, he heard those 13 times. And so finally he said, look, this was nice, but I've got to go. Goodbye. And... I don't even think I got his name. And, you know, it's all of us, if we, if we asked ourselves, if we took a poll, we all want to see our lost friends and relatives and neighbors come to Jesus. But often we feel like I felt in that moment, and that is deeply inadequate. And so we hide behind feelings of inadequacy and not having the right thing to say, or, well, I'm, a, I'm an introvert, or I'm this, or I'm that. And, you know, it, sometimes God can, can use just our willingness to step out. But Jesus, in Luke 15, drills this home to us by telling us three stories. One's about a lost sheep, one's about a lost coin, and one of them's about a lost son. And when we're talking about joy, Jesus makes this point that the the shepherd finds a sheep, and what does he do? He, He brings some friends over, and they have a party. Come and rejoice with me. My lost sheep has been found. And the woman, when she finds the coin, what does she do? She calls her friends over and says, I have found my lost coin. Let's have a party. And the father, when his lost son comes home, what does he do? 
put a ring on his finger, put a robe on his back, kill the fatted calf, baby. Let's have a party. There's more joy in heaven when one lost sinner comes home. What a great party that father has. But it wasn't real great for that older brother, was it? That older brother was outside the party. There's a party going on because that which is lost has been found. And the older brother is outside. And there's a couple of things going on with that. And the father comes out and says, uh, look, you need to come into the, the party, son. And he's like, well, look, um, I'm not really into this. And he says a couple of things. He says, one of them is, look, look, I've been with you all these years. I never had a party. Why couldn't I have had a party? You see, he, he was a Palm Sunday Christian. He wanted to experience the party of his father, but he did not want to participate in the mission of his father to find the lost son. So when the lost son came home, he wasn't real thrilled about it. Not only that, but what happened at the beginning of that story? The father did what with everything he had? Divided in half. He gave half of it to the younger son, and he wasted it all. Everything else in that homestead belonged to who? So whose fatted calf was that that got killed? <laughs> whose ring got put on his finger? Where did the... And so not only was the older brother not participating in the father's mission to go find the younger son, now he's watching his own inheritance get wasted on this frivolous party. And he's just not real happy about that. Our Father's inviting us into his party to participate with him in finding those that are lost. But the good news this morning is that we have a perfect older brother. We have one who left the Father's house on the Father's mission to seek and save the lost, to find that prodigal and to bring them home back and to share with them his inheritance. The good news of the gospel is that our older brother is a perfect older brother who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that you could come home to the Father. Now that is good news. That is good news to me. And our older brother gladly wraps us in his garment of righteousness. He gladly puts on our hand the ring of the adoption into his family. We have a good older brother. As I read through the New Testament, I also think that in many ways the Apostle Paul was a good older brother. He wrote this to the Corinthians. He said, in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Now, somebody yesterday read about Paul's afflictions. The dude had a rough time. 
I mean, it, you know, you read his itineraries, and it's like, well, let, let's go on to the next city. We'll, we'll, let's go get beat up again. Let's go hit with, get hit with rods again. Let, let's, go, let's go and endure this thing. And in the middle of all that, he's overflowing with joy. There is a dimension of joy that Paul walked in because he participated in his father's mission to bring the lost prodigal home to the father. Our challenge is that we want to experience that joy in the happy, safe confines of Palm Sunday. And Jesus says, no, there is a kind of joy that's only on the other side of the cross. Now, where I have perhaps seen this lived out most in my own life is in our churches over in Ukraine. Now, Ukraine's been in the news, and people have asked me, well, Tom, you, know, you lived there for five years, so what's your perspective on, on this whole deal in, in Ukraine? And I guess the short answer is it's a mess. Um, if you have a, a big view of history, Vladimir Putin is simply reverting to a centuries-old Russian perspective of imperialism. Uh, the last 20 years have been sort of a historical aberration. The 70 years of communism were simply Russian imperialism fused up with a certain ideology and economic and philosophical system. But before communism, the Russians have always been imperialistic. Uh, and so this is just Putin doing what Russian Tsars have always done. Ukraine bless their hearts, have almost always been dominated by their strongest neighbor. They were dominated by Poland-Lithuania. They were dominated by Austro-Hungary. And at the beginning of the last century, eastern Ukraine was part of Russia. Western Ukraine was part of Poland. And so this is, this is the story of, of Ukraine. But I, I've been on the phone constantly with our pastors there and during all, all that's, that's been going on. And, you know, the amazing thing, the amazing thing is, yes, on one hand, they're concerned about their country. They have question marks. If, if Putin decided militarily to invade, I mean, he'd be all the way to Kiev before anybody blinked, really. It would, that, that, that could happen. And so there's, yes, they're, they're aware of that. But yet, I said, Oleg, our pastor in Ternopil, what are you guys going to do? He said, well, Tom, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to do what Jesus told us to do. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to make disciples. We're going to plant churches. They look at all of this as a gospel opportunity. He said, Tom, you know what? Since all of this has happened, there's more openness for the gospel. They are not looking at how this whole Putin thing has impacted their retirement accounts. <laughs> They're looking at it from, this has created more gospel openness. This is a divinely orchestrated opportunity for gospel advance. That's kingdom thinking. That's embracing the joy of the cross. Oleg, what are you going to do? Well, there's this city in Mykolaiv, and we're planning a church plant there. 
They're assembling a team. They're, they're, they're on the way. Church planning gospel advance, gospel increase is continuing. In our American perspective, this is challenging for us to understand. It's a very difficult in the European perspective to understand, but there is more gospel advance going on around the world right now and perhaps any time in history. Muslims are coming to Jesus in droves. The gospel in Asia, the gospel in China, the gospel in India. Lost people are coming to Jesus all over planet Earth. Now, it's true, here in our 4% sliver of Earth's population, our perspective is a little bit different. The Lord is inviting us to have a kingdom perspective. This, this is also played out here in these Hebrews. Um, I read this, I understand it intellectually. This is a challenging verse for me. The author says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Now, to pause there, the, the people in prison they had compassion on. This is gospel. This is not just prisoners generically. This was gospel oriented. Those who had been reproached and afflicted and publicly exposed and were being treated this way because of the gospel. You had compassion on those in prison. And look at this. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now, two opposite things being put together. Jumbo shrimp, joyfully accepting the plundering of your property. What's going on with that? How can they do that? When was the last time you met somebody joyfully accepting the plundering of their property? Now, plundering, that, that's an interesting phrase. Here in the States, we call it taxation. How, when you can no longer get a tax-deductible thing for giving your check, are you still going to give as joyfully? I hope so. Look at this. Since you knew, since you knew, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These Hebrew Christians were looking at something, an inheritance, a possession that could not be plundered. It could not be tampered with. It was safe in the vault of heaven. Their inheritance in Christ, their joy of the Lord, this righteousness, peace, and joy in the kingdom of God was theirs. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. I believe that we live in a day when God wants to restore confidence. It's a powerful word, confidence. Not arrogance, not triumphalism, but I, I think that God would like to minister to his church a confidence in him, a confidence 
in the inheritance that we have in him. Our property might get plundered. We might be one day exposed to reproach and affliction. But don't throw away your confidence. Your confidence in him has a great reward. We also see this in the Macedonians. Paul says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Intellectually, I understand this. Emotionally, this is challenging for me because I like to think that I can have my best life now. There is an abundance of joy that can be joined up with extreme poverty. I see this in Ukraine. Um, I, I, I go to Ukraine not because of what I give them. I go because they challenge my faith. I go because they read the Bible and they believe it. I go because they say, well, Jesus said to make disciples, so that's what we're doing. What's the question, Tom? I go because they said visit those in prison. So they do that. All of our churches, just this unique niche thing that God's given them, they all have rehab centers where they are working with the, the, the poorest, the most destitute, the drug addicts and all that. And, and I, I, I don't know anything about that. In the middle of that, you know, the, these, these guys who have been through the rehab center and been delivered out of just an abject life and are now serving faithfully in the church with jobs, their lives restored, they're, they're giving, they're working, they're married. Um, the, the, the most beautiful thing, this, this pastor Olick in Ternopil, they adopted a girl out of the most dysfunctional, messed up family background, adopted her young, raised her as their daughter. She's a woman of God. One of the guys who came through their rehab thing from a completely messed up background, but his life ultimately restored, and he's the head usher deacon in this church and the two of them got married and you just think my goodness that is the kingdom of God at work extreme poverty they don't care there is a joy of the Lord that is their strength living God may you refresh us in that joy May we set our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. May God open our eyes to him. There is a joy that you can experience in partnering with our Father in his mission that's like no other joy that exists. Right as I was getting ready to graduate from university, from that, that zoo down there called Chapel Hill, um, I, got, I got this letter in the mail and 
looked at it, and it was from, I, I didn't know who it was from. And I, it was a wedding invitation. Strangest thing. And I, you know, usually you know people who invite you to the wedding. And I, so I decided, I'm going to go just to find out <laughs> I'm just, you know, who's the mystery wedding. And so I just I, I went along and went into the wedding. And I was sitting there watching the wedding. And I kept thinking, I've seen this. Who is this? I, I still don't know who he is, but I've seen him before. And after the wedding, we're there at the reception. It was a great meal. I'm like, you know, you're, you're a college student, so free food is always good. And I'm like, you know, this has been good. And finally, the guy came up to me and said, Tom, you don't remember me, but one day I was sitting there on the footsteps of the pit, and this guy was out there preaching, and you came up and started sharing the gospel to me. And then you chased me into the cafeteria. <laughs> And before I could ask a question, you would answer it. I got so angry at you, and I, I just had to leave. And I went out that night, and I got drunk. But those seeds that you sowed in my heart would not let me go. And later that week, I repented and gave my life to Jesus. And I just want to thank you. I invited you to my wedding just so I could thank you. Thank you for sharing the gospel with me. That's the most joyful wedding I've ever been to. There is a joy that God has for you if you will partner with the Father in his kingdom business. Let's go to God in prayer. Our living God, we thank you that we have a perfect older brother who despised the shame and for the joy set before him endured the cross. He took our place. He chased us down and brought us home. Father, we say thank you. Thank you for sending us your son to bring us home to yourself. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Our Father, you hold out for us this morning a kind of joy, a kind of joy that's beautiful, a kind of joy that transcends the happy moment of Palm Sunday, but it goes through the pathway of the cross and comes out on the other side of resurrection power, O oh God, as we partner with you in your family business. Father, I believe that there are people here this morning that need to be refreshed in your joy. There are people here this morning that need a fresh dose of confidence in you. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If you need to be refreshed in the joy of the Lord. Father, I thank you, living God. You see each person here. And we thank you that Jesus told us that his joy can be our joy, that in him our joy can be full. Father, I pray for every person here, O oh God, that you would refresh us in the joy of the Lord. Yes. 
Father, forgive us for where we have looked for joy in other places. Lord, forgive us when we have gone to alternative sources thinking that in that or in that or in that we'll find happiness and contentment and joy rather than partnering with our Father in kingdom business. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would refresh us in your Holy Spirit right now. Come, Holy Spirit, and refresh us in joy. For this we give you praise, God. In Jesus' name, amen.